Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. On Sunday evening, Bill Simmons and Ryan Rosillo were live on Twitter both before and after the Packers-Chiefs matchup to give you their takeaways at the halfway point of the season, as well as their playoff predictions and instant reactions from the game. You can find the pre- and post-game shows on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash The Ringer. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is H.R. Haldeman. I'm joined by Attorney General John Mitchell and Vice President Spiro Agnew. And the Washington Nationals are champions of the world. Friends, did you ever think you would see that? (laughs) I did not expect that intro. No. Do we all have to resign in disgrace now? I genuinely don't know what year it is uh, (laughs) after having stayed up until 4 a.m. writing consecutive days so it's a good thing i i've really felt for will harris in last night's game uh because like he's been excellent all postseason just ran out of gas right at the very end and you know we saw this happen to to andrew miller and Corey kluber a couple years ago and uh yeah i'm feeling that right now zach the the most youthful member of our team have you two been uh been worn down by the ravages of of postseason play most certainly the Complaints I had last week about, uh, w- wow, earlier this week. See, I already lost track of time. The complaints I had earlier this it's week Saturday about to me right now. <laughs> a lack of classic World Series games was uh, sent by the wayside in game six and seven. So that was good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everything that we said earlier this week, you know, back in, in November 2013, when we recorded the, the first episode of, of this series, uh, the Astros did not, in fact, have it in the bag. Uh, and we did get to you know, maybe classic is too strong a word, but two very competitive, very close, very fascinating World Series games to to turn to end this series. So uh, I guess let's let's start with Game Six. Go back a little bit farther. Go back to. Do you guys want to start with Strasburg, or do you want to start with the the interference play? Ugh, it, it all begins and ends with the interference play, doesn't okay. it? Yeah. All right. So. Trey Turner uh, hits a little little nubber, little slow roller, swinging bunt over to the left side of the pitcher's mound. Brad Peacock picks it up and throws it. And because it was a sphere thrown by Brad Peacock, it swerved wildly to the right at the very last moment. Uh, the ball, Trey Turner, and Yuli Gurriel's glove all arrive at the same place at the same time. And due to the poly exclusion principle, the ball goes away. Trey Turner is called out for interference uh, because he was running in fair territory at the time, as I don't know, 99% of right-handed batters would have been doing uh, at that specific point in time, uh, and chaos ensues. Uh, so if you want the the full rundown, I wrote a, a blog post about this after game six, but uh, Zach, as you were watching, uh, what was your reaction as, as the whole scenario unfolded? Well, first, I'm just glad that you were able to work the poly exclusion principle and chaos theory into this introduction. I don't think I did it right. I (laughs) I will say I was a lot better political science than than chemistry. So regardless of what the letter of the rulebook states, and maybe that's worth further debate, but regardless, I don't think I've ever seen a right-handed batter run differently to first base. And it wasn't like he swerved inside. He was running straight along the line as he intersected with the first base bag he hit the middle of the bag and i think from a narrative standpoint from a the standpoint of someone who didn't have a rooting interest in this game i was 
happy that this didn't end up being decisive. As you wrote on your piece, this was a really meaningful play. Like Alex Bregman had homered in the first inning to give Houston a 2-1 lead in game six. And by win probability added, this reversal was actually more beneficial to the Astros' chances of winning the game than Alex Bregman's homer was. And I think that underscores just how crucial a call this was, a, a really unusual call in this moment in particular. Like, if this had happened in a regular season game in August, I would have thought that it was a strange decision. And to come in the seventh inning of an elimination game in the World Series just amplified the absurdity of it all. So Anthony Rendon ended up homering two batters later. The Nationals won the game going away. And I think that ended up being a very good thing for the sport because for all the numerous issues the the sport has had this postseason and the discussions about not the players themselves and the amazing things they can do on the field, this would have been like an off season's worth of horrible debate. Yeah, it's it's hard to like Don Denkinger is the the obvious parallel that that comes to mind. And this and is we know his, and we know his name right. 35 years later. And this is different. It it's not even a blown call. I think everybody maybe not everybody, but most reasonable people are willing to forgive a blown call because this is the human element that we, for better or for worse, have to live with in baseball. But this was just, I mean, Ben, this, the, what got me about this is the difference between the letter of the law and the way the law is enforced. Yeah. And you know, the way you see this every time there's an, you know, baseball players don't, they can live with a strike zone that's a weird shape or not the rule book strike zone as long as it stays the same throughout the game. And mm-hmm. when you see players argue balls and strikes, it's because of it's not because of rules being misapplied. It's because of inconsistency. Yeah. If you wanted to take a strict constructionist stance on this and just say, hey, this is the law of the land and umpires are obligated to uphold it. We don't want any umpires legislating from the bench here. They're not lawmakers. They're just jurists. And so you have to go with the the technicalities. I think you can make a case that it was the correct call and that it's just a bad rule correctly applied. I think the problem with that, though, is that it's so inconsistently applied that the precedent is just a mess. You you well, can't I, even. I was going to say it is consistently applied. <laughs> it's uh, consistently not applied, and that's well, the, yes, right. Precisely uh, the problem. Every now and then, it's applied, and we have this debate. And if it happens at a moment like this, then that's a debate that could range on, rage on forever. And I am also very grateful that this doesn't have to. And I hope that this will be the impetus for some sort of change because this seems fixed. And to have a a high profile case here and you know that everyone in the league office was sweating bullets as this was happening, like the whole review that happened for no apparent reason just seemed to be like, hey, get us out of this somehow, like someone on the headset, tell me what to do here because I don't want this to go down in history as a notorious call. But my initial reaction, which you asked Zach for, mine was just, oh, no, I need to look up this rule again because I am constitutionally incapable of keeping it straight in my head. And even as I read it, it's so poorly written, not just poorly conceived, but poorly written that as I read it, it's like each preceding sentence just slips out of my mind because there are like four parentheticals in this rule and none of it is clear to me at all. So this seems simple enough to fix. Just bring in the softball safety bag and it'll look weird for a season and then we'll all get used to it and then this won't be a problem. But I'm I'm glad that this did not turn out to be the legacy of this series. And frankly, I I don't think that where Turner was running actually affected the outcome of the play. 
So that's something to to consider, even if it's not necessarily something that the umpire has to take into account. Yeah, part of me is worried that if they do make something like this reviewable or if they change the wording of the play, like I've seen the NFL tweak the catch rule so many times over the, the past 10 years, even 20 years, that uh, I worry that whatever they come up with is going to be worse just by nature of being reactive. But I think mm-hmm. that everybody's relieved that this didn't end up determining the series. I think even yeah. AJ Hinch said something like, yes. you know, I totally see it, it, it was either he thinks Dave Martinez had a case and uh, we'll talk about Dave Martinez in a second uh, or, or echoed that sentiment that like, I'm sure he would have rather won the series on this play than lost it the way he did. But yeah, yeah this is not, yeah, we saw, we've seen so much from the umpires in this series and uh, it's just, uh, I'm, I'm relieved that, that we got the farce element of that without actually having to, to deal with the consequences. Cause the yeah. farce elements between Trey Turner, uh, I think you mentioned the, uh, the guys on the headset, you know, like, please let me off the hook, <laughs> yeah. uh, Joe Torrey and, and the, the wording <laughs> of the rule book, which Joe Torrey read verbatim in his post game press conference, uh, and Trey Turner yelling at him from the dugout, yes. Dave Martinez go like looking like in Dominican Sue trying to, to get to Sam Holbrook. Um, Oh boy. That was, that was my favorite part. I think Turner just like yelling, please let me speak to your supervisor, basically, and just accusing Tori of cowardice and hiding behind home plate, which I don't know if that was true, but I very much enjoyed the hot mics there. And yes, I think Hinch did say the next day, of course, not in the moment, but I think he said that he thought Turner should have been safe. And I don't even understand really the judgment call distinction. Judgment calls are not reviewable. Does that make sense? Isn't every call a judgment call? Isn't a fair foul boundary call a judgment call? So this is like the, there is like fair or foul is a like, yes, it requires judgment to make, but there's like, like a black or white answer. Like either it hits the line or it doesn't. Right. So we need to make this a black and white question, which I think we can. This is a, it requires an, like an interpretation of of the rule. Like there's a gray area to whether or not he interfered. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, if that's the way the rule is, then Joe, you know, Joe Torrey is not the world's greatest, uh, most creative legal mind. So he's going (laughs) to apply the rules as, as, uh, as they're written down. But yeah, it's, it, like there were like shades of the the gold medal basketball game in 1972 with him sitting on the um on the sideline uh i guess and everybody's like begging him to to intervene but yeah this i i enjoyed that we got this i i think it put a lot of life back into a series that was you know, sort of slipping away from us and so i i'm glad we saw it i'm i'm much more glad that it didn't end up impacting the the outcome of the game what did end, end up impacting the outcome of the game is Steven Strasburg, uh, who ended up winning World Series MVP for, and just looking back at his, his career postseason stats, this might have been the worst playoff series of his career uh, when you take in you take everything into account. He allowed two runs uh, in the first inning of Game 6 and never looked back and was not troubled down the stretch at all. Probably should have finished that game off. Um, he ends this postseason with a career playoff ERA of 146. A career uh, playoff strikeout to walk ratio of eight point eight eight. We should we won't be talking about this in the the same uh, same breath as like Kurt Schilling in two thousand one, Madison Bumgarner in twenty fourteen. But I mean, he it's 
short of that, it's difficult to overstate how important this performance was to the Nationals winning. Zach? Well, I quibble first with your saying that uh, this replay call added life to the series that lacked it. I think that was added earlier in the game on the home run celebrations. Because oh, right. Basically, <laughs> Stras- yeah, basically Strasburg's, he made a couple mistakes in the first inning. He admitted after the game that he thought uh, he and like the pitching coach realized he might have been tipping his pitches, which is a theme um, in first innings and important games for the Astros this postseason. So in that first inning, he allowed, I think, a leadoff double and then a run scored. And then he allowed a home run to Alex Bregman, who then carried his bat all the way to first base and tried to execute a handoff with the first base coach and it dropped. And then in the fifth inning, as Houston led two to one, uh, first, uh, there was a tie score after a home run, and then Juan Soto hit another home run to give Washington the lead. And then he intentionally took his bat all the way to first base to mimic Bregman. So we'll talk about Strasburg in a second. I just want to make sure we get that out of the way. Like that was a perfect example of gamesmanship. That I, I, I guess Alex Bregman did apologize after the game, and people were upset at him for some reason, but I think Soto's in particular, this sort of uh, getting Bregman back in the exact same way was the perfect kind of jumpstart the series needed. Yeah, I, I, the the interference play just so overshadowed everything else that like I just completely forgot about what would have been the story of the game, which was those two home runs and those two home run celebrations. It's, you know, it's, I guess, a little, uh, a little weird to say, like, this is great gamesmanship. This is, um, like great theater the morning after Joel Embiid uh, started writing in Carl Anthony Towns Instagram comments. Um, but this is what passes for for great theater in baseball, I think. And, and these are two of the guys that between bright, like there's a, a great baby face and, and heel dynamic to these two players. And both of those guys have, have really demonstrated an ability to play to the crowd, to, to put on a show in moments like this. And I, this might, go against what a lot of people on the baseball internet believe, but I'm kind of over bat flips at this point. Like unless you're going to have a Jose Bautista level bat flip, whatever, like most bat flips are pretty similar now, but this added some creativity. It added something new. And I think uh, we also saw this last night, uh, which with game seven, which we'll get to, but when Daniel Hudson got the final out, instead of just tossing his glove in the air, he like fired that toward the dugout, which was great. I love these, little wrinkles to the celebration that kind of they'll stick with me. I'll, I'll remember the Soto carrying the bat. Soto was perfect. I, I thought the, the Bregman bat carry, I don't know if that that was all that well executed. I mean, I appreciate his attempt to do something original and I'm almost sorry that he apologized because a good heel never says sorry. And if you're going to play loud, then play loud. Yeah. But <laughs> this, this did not really look smooth to me. It, it was like, you know, Bartol Colon carries his bat to first base because he doesn't know what he's doing there. <laughs> that just seemed like kind of an absent minded, like, oh, I'm still carrying this. What, what should I do with it? I guess I'll hand it to the first base coach. Oh, he's not expecting it. So then he dropped it and now it's just rolling around the field and Jose Altuve is grimacing because this is kind of Bush League. So I didn't object to it on like he's showing up the other team grounds so much as I did on just aesthetic, not well executed celebration grounds. Yeah. Did, so I I think that that was really just an omen of things to come. 
the 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 brashness and then just not executing it right. Yeah, and the the Nationals uh, really took back the series after that. After Soto executed his pastiche of that move. Ben, do you think the the botched handoff was where the momentum really swung in this series? <laughs> yeah, that was it. That would be my turning point in the series right there. All right. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Zach. I, I think that we've sort of done the bat flip thing. It's it's time to for the next next frontier of baseball celebration innovation. All right, I'm going to take this back to, to Strasburg real quick because I, I think like this has been one of my favorite storylines to watch uh, is just how controversial Strasburg has been as a playoff entity and just watching him put it all together. And, and, you know, he's got a lower career playoff ERA than Bumgarner, than Bob Gibson, than Schilling, than any number of other uh, pitchers we think of as being just um, ungodly clutch. And, you know, for, for all the attention that's been on, you know, Max Scherzer is, uh, is definitely the ace of the staff, but uh, you know, Strasburg was the best pitcher this postseason, I think. Yeah, and skipping ahead a little, I'm glad that Strasburg didn't pitch in Game so Seven. Relieved. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, a because I I just don't think that it would have been that defensible a choice. The Nash had better options than Strasburg on zero days rest, but also I don't think his postseason story needed that. It's sufficient as it is. It's a great story. It's a great narrative. We didn't need him being on the mound and recording the last out in that dramatic situation. And also, I, I just think, you know, it was the right move, really. And I'm sort of sorry now that we immediately transitioned to the where will Strasbourg go next year and uh, that's not where hours. I was immediately going to transition. Yeah, I mean, you know, he certainly has earned the leverage here and either to opt out or to use the opt out as leverage and maybe work out an extension. I just wish that we had a little more time to savor the celebration and what he accomplished. Like it's a long off season free agency doesn't even start until January anymore. So there's time to sort all this stuff out. And I wish we could kind of take a beat and appreciate what he just did before we try to figure out where he will go and how he will use it. So it just, it always sort of is a shock to the system when we go from Game seven of the World Series to talking about free agency and qualifying offers and surtaxes and such. Yeah, well, we'll talk about that later. I do. I actually thought you set up a better segue to the plan for the Astros, apparently, in game seven, which was to have Garrett Cole close it out. I, I wonder if that Clayton Kershaw coming in for the save in 2016 in the NLDS, like, sort of did something to managers because now <laughs> yeah, they're all staging that photo op because <laughs> yeah. you know, Kershaw did this in the in the NLCS last year. Chris Sale uh, closed out the World Series last year. And obviously it was the plan A for AJ Hinch, which is so weird for him. This is like he, this is not usually uh, the way he makes decisions, but he was going to use Garrett Cole only as a one inning closer, apparently, which I don't know, like that game got out of hand with with uh, Joe Smith and Jose Arquiti on the mound. And uh, I, I, I imagine he probably wants that one back because so he's I, this was the the focus of, of my postgame column from from game seven, uh, which was three discrete but related pitching uh, decisions that, that A.J. Hinch made the decision to take out Zach Greinke, who was pitching his best game of the postseason uh, through six and a third innings, the decision to bring in Will Harris, who surrendered the series winning run or series winning home run and the decision not to use Garrett Cole at all. And the last one, like I, I absolutely understand if you're hesitant about, he's never done this before. He's on 
two days rest. He's never pitched on two days rest. He's never pitched out of the bullpen. It, you know, game seven of the World Series is a hell of a time to find out if he could do those things. But if he's out in the bullpen, he's dressed. He's certainly expected to pitch just based on the way he acted uh, toward the end of the game and then in the postgame interviews. And, uh, you know, and the Astros lost the series and then allowed the Nationals to put distance between themselves and Houston with lesser pitchers on the mound. So, it it just all seemed like it was lining up that photo op with Cole on the mound celebrating the final out of the World Series, and they just never actually got there. So, Zach, what do you make of uh, of this decision? Is it like I I said this was sort of a lesser grady little thing? I don't think that this is going to be AJ Hinch's defining moment, but you know, do you think that that he made a mistake at some point? Well, I think there are two varieties of using an ace to close out a game. Uh, specifically a World Series Game 7. On the one hand, you have out of necessity, like in 2014, the Giants, when they inserted Madison Bumgarner in the fifth inning, did not expect him to finish the game, but they needed a reliever. Tim Hudson started that game and did not give them much length. They didn't have the reliable relievers. Or like, I mean, this is very old, but one of our favorite World Series ever in 1924, the pitcher for the Washington Senators who won that series was Walter Johnson, who threw the last four innings of Game 7 after struggling in Games 1 and 5. So this isn't a completely new phenomenon, but in those cases, like in the Senator series, they were going to extra innings, and it's not like teams had robust bullpens back then. So I think that would be more forgivable if that's what Hinch had done, and that's what I thought he was going to do, inserting Cole in the seventh inning. I don't mind using Will Harris there necessarily because... As we've talked about on this pod before, he is one of the most underrated relievers in baseball with the third best relief ERA since signing with Houston alongside the guys we do think are the best relievers in baseball, Hayter and Jansen and Chapman. But I feel like Will Harris versus Garrett Cole, even with the potential caveats that he hasn't thrown in relief before, I can't imagine Garrett Cole not being able to pitch well. And it's not like the bases were loaded. There was just a runner on first base. So, yes, this is in, in hindsight, but if I were going to pull Granky there, I would have put in Cole. And on the other hand, Will Harris is a good pitcher, and Howie Kendrick hit a ball like 330 feet that hit the foul pole, and if that doesn't happen, nobody potentially is second-guessing this decision. So I feel like focusing on the specific pitching move is not necessarily the right place to go when analyzing Game 7, although I know that's kind of the obvious takeaway in all of these situations when a, a relief decision backfires. Yeah. Harris threw a good pitch. That was a really good pitch and Kendrick put a good swing on it, but you know, a few feet foul, it just wouldn't be something that we were talking about right now. And I feel really sorry for Harris who seemed pretty predictably broken up about this after the game because he's been great for several seasons. He was great for the entire postseason run right up until game six. And now he was, you know, kind of the the goat in these last couple games. And that's a shame. So I really had no problem with pulling Granky there. You know, his his previous outings had not been very long. He was third time through the order. He'd given up the homer and a walk and that's okay. Like if this were not the 2019 postseason where every starting pitcher seems to throw 110 pitches all over again, we would all be advocating for this move. This is like the the obvious move that everyone on Twitter is calling for, usually, especially in a game seven when everyone's available. So that's okay. And Harris is really good. So I, I don't hate it. But that said, 
if you are going to use coal, if you intend to use coal, if you have coal warming up, then you should probably use them at some point. You should probably not lose the World Series using six other pitchers and not Garrett Cole, which I can infer is how Cole felt, given that he was wearing the Boris Corp cap in his <laughs> post-game interview. But like, I, I think Kinch's justification, as you said, was that he was planning to use Cole to finish out the game. And that just seems overly rigid. I mean, why does it have to be that? If you think that he is one of your best options, then you should get him into the game somehow. This is almost like a Mike Matheny-type justification. Speaking of which, congratulations to Mike Matheny on being a major league uh, manager yeah, again. <laughs> good. I was worried that, that we weren't going to talk about that, but yeah, we got that in. Can I offer that for as much quibbling as we might do with how uh, Hinch handled Cole in this game or didn't handle Cole... I almost think he did a better job going to his bullpen than uh, his counterpart, TV Martinez did yes, because yes. the under discussed story of this game is that Houston should have been up by a lot more than two to zero after yes. six innings. The, before we, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Before we, we'll get right back to that. I do like from a tactical perspective, what I see is like he said, the way he set up that plan, I think Harris was absolutely the guy to bring in there. And like, sometimes like you said, Ben, like, this is playoff baseball, and Howie Kendrick is the the Will Harris of of National League infielders, pretty much, you know. <laughs> and so, like sometimes you make the good pitch, and sometimes the the guy on the other side, who's also a really good player, just beats you, and that happens. And I think that's something that there were even even analysts like us are sometimes far too reluctant to to bring up as a reason that a team lost a World Series game. Like only one team can win, and sometimes. Yeah, sometimes it just doesn't work and and that's fine. And you know, it's not a, a moral failing or anything like that. But uh what what bringing in Harris there and having Cole to backstop that game does is it allows Hinch to bring in Roberto Osuna maybe an inning or two earlier than he might have otherwise. And we saw Osuna come in and you know, he didn't pitch that well either, but he was able to get out of that jam in the um in the seventh inning. And I thought the the Nats could could have broken that one open. Um, and maybe just because Osuna was in the game early that uh, that's why that he was in the game already. You take him out and you've got no good relievers left if you go to Cole in the eighth. Like I think Hinch had that plan and he just and it started to fall apart when when Harrison Osuna gave up runs and he just didn't adapt that well to it. And, you know, the the decision to, to pull Granky early, like you said, Zach, like I Maybe it was premature, but it was a lot closer to the right time than when when Dave Martinez pulled uh, pulled Max Scherzer. Um, so the only thing that that I think Hinch did, like put my foot down wrong, was not uh, not go to Cole in the ninth inning. Do we think uh, there's always discussion on broadcasts that when you bring a starter in in relief, you want to do so in a clean inning. You don't want to bring them in with runners on base, and I get that starters aren't used to starting innings with runners on base, but do we think that actually matters as much as it seems to in the discourse? Because like Garrett Cole knows how to pitch with runners on base this year. I'm looking Does at a he? splits. Has well, he ever allowed this runner? <laughs> I'm looking at his splits now in the few times he allowed runners to reach base this year. He actually was better slightly with men on base than with the bases empty. And like, unless it's a John Lester situation in which you're worried about, bringing them in and immediately allowing a couple stolen bases. I feel like that's not necessarily the best excuse for not bringing in 
uh, a starting pitcher in a key situation if you think he's your best arm. So what mm-hmm. what how I would respond to that is it's not just that. I think that's also code for like the larger context of of bringing in a starting pitcher to put down a jam, which is that it takes those guys a lot longer to warm up than a short mm-hmm. reliever. And so like you want to you want to give them a, a clean inning maybe because there's something to and yeah, I have not done a, a detailed uh, empirical study of this. So uh, who knows if, the, if this is actually actually true or not. Uh, but it's you want to bring them in in a planned situation because they're not used to having to to answer the bell and warm up quickly and, and go in without being prepared. It's just another variable that you can uh, that you can minimize. And even you know even one inning closers, you know your Rolls Chapmans who are not used to to playing that fireman role are more used to doing it than than your starter if you go to go to them in that situation. So you know I I I'm sympathetic to the. Uh, to the argument that you want to bring your starter in in a very planned, controlled situation and ideally with the bases clean. Well, yeah. this was relevant last night with Corbin uh, not coming in for Scherzer because it seemed like Davey Martinez didn't have a single reliever yeah. he would trust to relieve him. And if if they were going to pull Scherzer in the middle of an inning, I would have brought in Sean Doolittle because he's the guy you bring in to, you know, even more so than Hudson, I think, uh, is the guy you bring in to get out of a jam and you have him throw his... Uh, get out of the inning, and then if he's got another inning in him, then you go there, and then you bring in Corbin with the with the bases empty to start an inning, which is what they did. Which brings us back to the point you were trying to make oh, about four minutes ago, Zach. So why don't you pick a pick up there? I so the Astros ended up leaving ten runners on base in this game, and they left two runners apiece in the second inning, the third inning, the fourth inning, and the fifth inning, and it wasn't like Scherzer was necessarily throwing great pitches to get out of jams. He was giving up a lot of hard contact. That was just finding Victor Robles' glove or falling just short of the Crawford boxes. And uh, in Game 7 of the 2017 World Series, the Astros jumped to an early lead on you, Darvish that was large enough that it was pretty comfortable the rest of the way. And that seemed like it could have been the case in this game if just one of those hard hit balls had fallen. It could have been 4-0 instead of 2-0. And then I think that changes the late inning complexity entirely. So I think ultimately it's pretty cool that we were able to see Scherzer gut out five innings and over 100 pitches just a few days after being in so much pain that he couldn't get dressed. But from a strategic standpoint, I think Martinez played with fire all night long and uh, ended up getting lucky he wasn't burned. Yeah, I agree too. And I think it was one of those cases where he just wasn't going to make that move until the Astros forced him to basically because it was Scherzer, because of what Scherzer had gone through to get on that mound, because of how intense he is and his whole career and what he's meant to that team. He would have had to just give up more than one run, I think, to actually have the ball taken out of his hands. And the Astros just kept threatening and threatening and could not quite break through. And speaking of hinge mistakes, if there was one clear-cut hinge mistake, assuming this was something hinge ordered, mm-hmm. the bunt by Robinson Chirinos in the second inning was just inexplicable. And my mind is still reeling about that one. And that is a case where it wasn't the Esters just failing to capitalize because the Crawford boxes are so shallow that Juan Soto could just barely catch that George Springer liner. This was an intentional mistake, an unforced error. Bottom of the second inning, Guriel homers, and then there are two hard-hit singles. Scherzer's getting knocked around. Every batted ball is 105 miles per hour. And then Chirinos, who is not exactly a practice bunter, 
lays down a bunt or attempts to and, and pops it up and there's an easy out, just a total gift. And I do not know what the thought process there. I, I haven't seen whether Hinch said that he ordered it or whether Chirinos did it on his own. But Or even if he did, you know, that's usually the kind of thing where the manager will cover for the player. If, right. If, yes. Uh, but that was just inexplicable to me. This was a throwback postseason in a lot of ways, just like sack bunts and intentional walks. Even A.J. Hinch got in on the intentional walks, although his one was certainly defensible. But between that and between the starters going as deep in the games as they did, it just felt like we were watching a postseason from five years ago. But yeah. that was a particularly glaring unastros like move. So here's what I'll say about the decision to leave Scherzer in is it made the game I, I would say uh, substantially more more exciting than it would have been yes. if, if Martinez had gone. Because I mean, there was just that I mean, Zach. You talk all the time about the like the solitary nature of the of the ace in a postseason game, and you know, even I, maybe even especially when the ace just doesn't have it, when he doesn't have his his good command, he's just you know really white knuckling through. And and the the extent to which the the Nationals were just hanging on by the skin of their teeth like even even when the Astros scored that second run it could have been way worse if Anthony Rendon just hadn't gotten a piece of that ball and deflected it in a in a foul territory instead of it going all the way to the corner I think was Josh Reddick the guy on uh the guy on second base when when that ball was hit um and he could have scored and made that you know two nothing is not it's not an insurmountable lead but it was uh Jordan Alvarez had been on first base oh, and he right. was only able to go to third. Right. And we almost had the the Terrence Gore pop-up slide uh replay review. Man, a lot happened in these <laughs> last two games. Um it's kind of remarkable like we all wrote last night and I don't know about you, but the way I interpret these games is I kind of enter a, a different state when I'm writing about it. So I wrote my recap, uh, watched the trophy celebration, and then kind of just sat there last night for a little while, letting the adrenaline die down and thinking, wow, like the Nationals actually won the World Series. And it seems strange to say, given that they were up 2-0 in the series and they were a very good team, but like even amid their comeback against the Brewers and their comeback against the Dodgers and then their comeback against the Astros, it didn't seem like it would actually really happen. And as we're talking about, there were so many cases in game six and seven alone where a, a bounce here or a managerial decision there and it wouldn't have happened so i think this is true of most teams that win the world series but i think the nationals in 2019 in particular are a team that i'm just going to be kind of amazed all off season and next opening day when they get the the trophy celebration i wonder if it will have been fully internalized yet you know what this sounds like to me ben what? This sounds like Zach bragging about filing early and having time to, <laughs> to sit and, and ruminate instead of writing all night. He is quite punctual. Lightning quick. Yep. Um all right. Uh, let's we're we're gonna talk about um we're gonna sort of spin this forward to to the offseason and uh, what this means for these two teams going forward and and you know we've covered this in, in written form. Uh but just real quick, like, you know, do you either of you guys have like takeaways, anything to you know, how might this series affect baseball going forward? 
Well, we were just talking about what a departure this postseason was from previous postseasons, and I don't know what to take from that because going back to 2015 or so, it seemed like things were heading in one direction when it came to how you win in October and maybe even how you construct your team with October in mind. And there was a clear progression for a few years there. And then suddenly we totally reversed it and we went back to workhorse starters and great rotations. And from a narrative spectator standpoint, it was an improvement. I was happy that we weren't talking about bullpenning and watching many bullpen games, at least once the Yankees got eliminated. But it was kind of confounding from an analytical perspective. And I don't know that everyone will now pivot 180 degrees and say, oh, no, let's go back to what we were doing before. This was the way to win, because I think there is a sound analytical grounding for the way that teams were starting to manage in the postseason. And maybe we wouldn't be talking about this if a couple games had gone in a different direction, if the Rays had beaten the Astros, if the Brewers had beaten the Nationals, then maybe we would have been talking about bullpenning this October, just like we were last October. So I wouldn't want to draw huge conclusions from that, but I'm glad that we got it. And also, it may have had to do with the dejuiced ball and the fact that scoring was down, offense was down. So I think managers just had slower hooks in general because their pitchers weren't allowing as many runs. And I don't know whether that will continue because, of course, we can't tell from month to month how the ball will behave. Zach, how about you? From a strategic standpoint, I'm thinking more broader than even in-game strategy in terms of roster construction the nationals are the second consecutive team to win the world series while spending a lot of money the red sox last year led the majors in payroll the nationals were second last year and in the top five this year and i think what was most important for them is that when bryce harper left in free agency they didn't just let him leave. They reinvested that money in Patrick Corbin and other free agents who proved vital to the team like Anibal Sanchez. And they upgraded the catcher core by signing Kurt Suzuki and trading for Jan Gomes. And I think even if every individual move didn't work out, like I'm sure they regret signing Trevor Rosenthal, for instance, the totality of their moves is what supplemented the score. I liked your piece on basically how the Nationals got here after a decade, Mike, because it really did start with uh, lucky and solid drafting. They got in consecutive years, Strasburg, Harper, and Rendon, and that's a great core, but they had to supplement it by signing Scherzer and Corbin and making good trades. And I think it should reinforce the lesson that activity and spending and trying to win is the way to do so. But given broader trends we've seen in the game and teams like the Red Sox and Astros talking about not exceeding the luxury tax i'm kind of skeptical that teams will actually take that lesson that's the big takeaway for me is we see how how these nationals were built and how aggressively they've and they're not running a 250 million dollar payroll but they're constantly turning over their roster over the course of the past decade trying to capitalize on on stumbling into the two best draft prospects of the decade and so i uh yeah, I I hope other people or other teams take that as a template. I fear that this might not actually be the case, but that's a, a conversation that I'm sure we'll we'll cover in, in greater depth. Um, so yeah, congratulations to to Washington. I I, I bad mouth the series uh, as recently as earlier this weekend, and, and <laughs> I was happy to uh, to be proven wrong. 
Yeah, the series really delivered those last couple games. In Game 7, we got multiple lead changes in these games. We got kind of a pitcher's duel in the last game. It was really exciting. And I am kind of wary of treating the Nats as this severe underdog. I mean, I certainly think that they were the underdog in the series and in the postseason, but they were also a good team. And Zach, I think you wrote that they were the biggest threat to the Dodgers, right? Back, uh, I don't know, two months ago, something like that. So I think that they I mean, were... both of us picked them to to go to the World Series. Yes, you yes, know, I, don't know, right. I don't know about you, Ben, but... <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think the thing is that, like, they, they had an incredible route to get here, and that made them look like a very unlikely champion. And to be fair, like, they had an extremely start, extremely slow start to the season. It's impressive that they overcame that. It's impressive that they survived five playoff elimination games. No team had ever survived four. I mean, to come back from trailing in five, that is unprecedented, and, and to win them all, and to beat the opponents that they did, the most combined post-wildcard regular season wins ever. They beat the Dodgers and they beat the Cardinals and they beat the Astros. That's 304 combined regular season wins there that they vanquished and no team has ever gone through a, a tougher slate of opponents to win the World Series. So they did it all. They had a tough route to get there and they overcame a lot, but also they were a really talented and great yeah. team and they played like one for most of the season. That underdog narrative to me was always more about the Dodgers than Astros being so good rather yeah. than the than the Nationals not being a championship quality team. Yes, right. I think you just look at that at uh, Soto and Rendon and, and some of the other position players, and particularly that rotation. Like obviously, mm -hmm. you see the way um, that they could be a threat to anybody, and yeah, you know, but yeah, they definitely had to earn it. So good yep. for them. All right. Uh, so you might remember we're gonna we're gonna change gears here real quick uh, and go through our preseason prediction game, which you might remember from March. Uh, several hundred of you went on the internet and filled out the survey. Uh, I asked Zach and Ben and Bobby uh, twenty questions before the or before the season, uh, and uh, and those questions were all answered by by all of us and by many of you. Uh, three people got 17 out of 20 questions right. Ooh. So uh, I would read out your names, except I realize now the way I formatted the survey, I did not ask for names. I asked for email <laughs> addresses. And so I'm not going to read out your email addresses on, <laughs> on this podcast. We'll figure out a, a way to get in touch and and, uh, and recognize our winners um, later on this month. But 17, or 17 was the, the high score. 17 was also the number of questions where the most popular answer was the, the correct answer. Uh, so we have none of us. smart listeners, wisdom of the crowds. I guess that's one way to look at it. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm, I'm just going to go through these questions and, and uh, sort of go back and see how all four of us did. Uh, the first question, will all three of the Astros, Dodgers, and Indians will win their respective divisions? All four of us said yes. The answer was no. Thanks <laughs> a lot, Cleveland. Uh, which of these pairs of players will generate more baseball reference war in 2019? Uh, JT Real Muto and Justice Sheffield or Jorge Alfaro and James Paxton. Uh, Real Muto and Sheffield had 4.6. Alfaro and Paxton had 3.2. Uh, Zach said Real Muto and Sheffield. Bobby said Real Muto and Sheffield. Actually, all four of us said Real Muto and Sheffield. Hmm. Uh, next question. Who will lead the Padres in innings pitched in 2019? Remember when the Padres <laughs> were like all we talked about on this show? Yeah. They will be again someday. Uh, options. Uh, were Chris Paddock, Joey Lucchese, Eric Lauer, or the field. Bobby and Zach took the field. 
uh, I took Lauer, Ben took Lucchese, and he turned out to be correct. Uh, the next, yeah, 163 innings. Uh, next question, which will happen first? Ian Happ ret- returns to the Cubs or Clegane Bowl? And you guys <laughs> all got this wrong, and you guys were really snotty about it. <laughs> you didn't think that there was any chance that Ian Happ was going to be held down in the minor leagues uh, until Clegane Bowl, which we all thought were, which ended up happening relatively late in the uh, in the run of the final Game of Thrones series, but Clegane Bowl came first, and mm. I was the only person to get that right, <laughs> at least among the four of us. Your faith in Ian Happ is really inspiring. Well, I mean, it's a lack of faith in the Cubs, I think. My, <laughs> my faith in Ian Happ is absolute. Uh, which will be greater, the average MLB game time in 2019 or the runtime of Avengers Endgame? Uh, MLB game time in 2019 was three hours, 10 minutes. So that was, I believe, an all-time high. Uh, I got that wrong, and y'all all got that right. What about the Avengers Endgame re-release where they put it out with extra material to try to set the the Avatar record? Did that change the answer? I don't know. I'll have to look I this up. Didn't know about that. Yeah, oh, yeah. let's uh let's <laughs> use the the re-release, whatever the, the larger one is. Okay. Um who will hit more home runs in 2019? Hunter Bishop of Arizona State or the Arizona Diamondbacks? leading home run hitter. I was the only person to guess uh, the Arizona Diamondbacks leading home run hitter who turned out to be Eduardo Escobar with 35. Hunter Bishop hit 22 and two other uh, Diamondbacks, uh, Cattell Marte and Christian Walker also beat that mark. If only we had known the ball would be super juiced again this year. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you just got to read the, read the non-conference schedule. You know, that's, (laughs) that's really all there is, which will be greater in 2019. Aaron Judge's uh, listed weight of 282 pounds or 1,000 times his batting average. Aaron Judge hit 272. And it looks like all four of us got that right. Hmm. I have an update on Endgame. So the the original cinematic release was 182 minutes. That's three hours, two minutes. The re-release with the extra footage, 188 minutes, three hours and eight minutes. So still not quite, right? Still two, not Two minutes short, but close. All right, next question. Will Tim Tebow appear in a regular season game for the Mets in 2019? Ben, congratulations, you <laughs> fucking cynic. Uh, <laughs> the only one of us to say no. <laughs> Sorry to spoil all your seasons with no Tebow. Yeah. Uh, before the end of the 2019 season, will Noah Syndergaard uh, announce he's taking a break from social media, get a haircut such that his hair is off his collar, both or neither? Obviously, neither. So, <laughs> sorry, I. I mean, I got that one wrong. This was a silly question, obviously. Uh, Which will be greater? The Baltimore Orioles win total or 10 times the U.S. women's national team's win total at the FIFA World Cup this summer? So the Orioles won 54 games. uh, The USWNT won seven. Uh, I picked the USWNT. All of you guys, unpatriotic, picked the Orioles. Um. I, I think Zach, you you gave the reasoning for that as the uh, the the looming was it quarterfinal matchup with France that, yes. that had you spooked, which then uh, the U.S. women's national team dominated. So I I mean, of all the ones I got wrong, I think I'm happiest to have gotten this one wrong. I would imagine so. All right, which will be greater: the number of pitchers who qualify for the ERA title, uh, i.e., throwing at least 162 innings, or the number of days between March 28th and and Dallas Keuchel's 
major league debut in 2019. 61 pitchers qualified for the ERA title. 85 days mm. from opening day to Dallas Keuchel's debut. I got that right. And I believe all the rest of you guys got that one wrong. Yep. Uh, how many teams that did not make the playoffs in 2018 will make the playoffs in 2019 over under three? All of us picked the over, and sure enough, four teams that missed the playoffs in 2018 uh, participated in the postseason 2019, Tampa Bay, St. Louis, Washington, and Minnesota. All right. Uh, so good job for all of us. Which league will finish with a better record in interleague play? All of us picked the National League, and sure enough, the National League uh, had the better record in, in interleague play. Which will be greater, the largest positive run differential in MLB by any MLB team or 1,000 times the league-wide batting average. Uh, the league-wide batting average, 252. The run, best run differential, 280. Uh, so Ben and I picked run differential. Bobby and Zach picked batting average. <laughs> Which former Vanderbilt pitcher? This one ended up being really close. Which former Vanderbilt pitcher will strike out the most hitters in 2019? The options were David Price, Walker Bueller, or the field. Um, let's see. Zach... And I both picked David Price. Uh, Bobby and Ben picked Walker Bueller. It was Walker Bueller with 215, but Sonny Gray had 205, Mike Miner, and even 200. Price had 128, Tyler Beattie 123. Or, sorry, 113. Miner was leading that at midseason, right? I guess he that, faded a bit in the second half. I, I mean, all I remember about Mike Miner's uh, running strikeout total is the, the, uh, last day of the season shenanigans he had to ah yes yeah they had to pull to get him <laughs> to an even 200 so yes. imagine if that had also determined uh the course of our prop bets game that would have been something else all right which group of players will record more baseball reference war in 2019 adam eaton chris sale jose quintana or essentially the group of minor leaguers who were traded uh traded for those pitchers or sorry traded for those players uh sale obviously was hurt adam eaton wasn't that good lucas giolito uh Beat all of them. Beat all of them combined on his own. Uh, the the prospects had twelve point one more. The veterans had five point three. I do not think uh, I predicted that. No, I think yeah. Actually, all of us got that one wrong. Yeah. So good job for Lucas Giolito. I think he had something like a seven win swing when you count that mm -hmm. he was uh, below replacement level. So that I mean that's the whole ball game right there. Um, Chris Davis is. 2019 batting average uh will it be greater than 247 less than 247 or exactly 247 both of you said exactly 247 bobby said greater than 247 i said less sure enough it was less uh will madison or sorry which will happen first madison bumgarner throws his last pitch for the giants or the first managerial firing of the season this one was also very close but not in the way that i expected because <laughs> the first managerial firing of the season was andy green on september 21st uh and madison bumgarner may not have thrown his last pitch for the giants yeah. uh but his last appearance was september 24th so mm -hmm. that one went right down to the wire uh, all of us picked the first or all of us picked managerial firing. All of us were proven correct. Uh, this one is probably my favorite. Who will produce the most ba baseball reference war this season? Williams, Astadio, Tyler Flowers, <laughs> or Lance Lynn. Friends. <laughs> Williams, Astadio, and even zero. Tyler Flowers, negative 0.1 win. Oof. Lance Lynn, 7.6. Dancing on my grave here. Bobby also picked Lance, so congratulations. 
Uh, and the last question, will the single season or sorry, the, will the single game season high for strikeouts by pitcher this year be over or under 16.5? Both of you went under Bobby and I went over. Uh, can either of you guys, did I tell you no. who, who went over? Okay. Uh, do either of you guys want to guess? Hmm. I don't remember. Was it Garrett Cole was, didn't go above yeah. 15. I don't think. No, there was one 17 strikeout game this year. Huh. I don't know. Chris Sale. Really? May 14th right. versus Colorado. Yeah. yeah, surprising to me, considering huh. that that he was either hurt or bad for most of the season. It is Chris Sale yeah. who saved my bacon uh, and went over with 17 on May 14th. Wow. So the time has come to declare a winner. <laughs> Zach Cram, you had seven. See, this is why I needed to get all my brags in early on this podcast because I knew this was coming. <laughs> uh, Bobby Wagner, our producer, the man who keeps the lights on, nine. Ben Lindbergh, 11. Mm. The the uh, the average, uh, the quiz average or the median was 11. So oh, That's uh, great. I love that I'm the average because that's always my position, that I am an average <laughs> predicting person and therefore I should not be called upon to make predictions. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's certainly better than what happened to Zach because uh, out of 536 <laughs> responses, only 11 came in lower than than Zach's total of seven. And uh, I, I looked this up, actually, uh, when you informed me last night of the top 536 players in plate appearances this year, not counting pitchers, uh, 12th from the bottom, which is evidently where I was, was Jeff Mathis. So I am the equivalent of Jeff Mathis on offense, which is uh, definitely not what you want. How are you calling pitches? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Honestly, that's surprising. I I thought that your gifts of information, Zach, extended to predicting the future, but apparently not. Small sample. uh, Those of us who, or the one of us who has the greatest gift of foresight is, of course, yours truly. I got 13 (laughs) correct. So I win. Uh, (laughs) I think there should be a a negative adjustment for the person who comes up with the questions. I tell you what, you can adjust this by a question and a half. I'd still fucking beat you guys. So (laughs) I like how you're crowing about winning in a game that you made up that many of our (laughs) listeners beat you at. (laughs) Yep. You got to take that. You got to take them where you can. Congratulations, Mike. Yeah, I I feel really good about this. So, yeah, thanks to everybody who participated uh, uh, in our predictions game. I I always have fun even when I don't win win these. So um, this is just this is a highlight of the season for me. Um, All right. That'll that'll just about do it for this week's edition of the Ringer MLB show. Uh, We're going to be back with a a show next week to preview the offseason. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, Ben, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, even though you, you got a lot of predictions wrong, it's it's been a pleasure talking to you all season. I mean, I did predict the Nationals to win the World Series in March. That's so true. I yeah, got imagine, that going for me. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's definitely an above average prediction. Bobby, thank you for, for stitching everything together. Uh, thank all of you for listening. Uh, enjoy. I don't know, get some sleep, guys. And uh, we'll see you next time.